0: As we continue our series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we're looking this morning at verses 30 through 35. Hear the Word of God, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, O God, that as we study it together now, that we would not only Uh, fill our minds with its truth, understanding those things you would have us learn, but that we would worship you with our hearts, that we would love your truth, that we would love you who gave us your word with our hearts. Father, help us to grow in your grace as we study your word together. Draw us closer to you, O God. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Confidence is often a good thing. Overconfidence is almost always a bad thing. Haman suffered from overconfidence. You'll remember Haman, of course, from the Old Testament book of Esther. Haman had become the advisor to the king, King Ahasuerus of Persia perhaps better known as Artaxerxes or just Xerxes, Haman was over all of his court officials. And Haman was very pleased with who he was and the position he had risen to. Well, one night the king could not sleep, and uh, as many people do when they can't sleep, they read. And so the king asked for the records of his kingdom to be brought to him. Maybe he saw that as verbal summonex, reading over the record of his reign might put him out. But at any rate, as he was reading uh, the records of his reign, he discovered something that had happened sometime before. And that is that Mordecai, the Jew, who is the older cousin of Esther, of course, for whom the book is named and who had become the king's uh, bride and queen over Persia, that Mordecai had foiled a plot to assassinate the king. He had overheard a couple of, uh, of men plotting, and he reported this, and they were dealt with. And as the king thought about that, he wondered and asked some of his attendants just outside, has anything been done to reward Mordecai for his service to the king? And they said, no, your majesty, nothing has been done. Well, the king thought that was completely inappropriate, and so the next day he asks his advisor, Haman, Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, you need to know, Haman hated Mordecai, because when Haman rose to his new position, many bowed and kowtowed before him, but Mordecai would not. And he hated Mordecai. And so the king says to him, what do you think should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? He didn't give away any names. And the Bible says, Haman had this thought. Whom would the king want to honor more than me? And so he says, well, your majesty, for the man whom the king delights to honor, he should be clothed in a robe that the king has worn. And he should be able to ride on a horse. that The king himself has ridden a horse with the royal crest upon his head. And he should have some of the top nobles lead him on that horse through the city, proclaiming, thus shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Sounded good to the king. He said, okay, Haman. Go to Mordecai the Jew, clothe him in my robes, put him on my horse, and you lead him through the streets, saying, Thus shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor, and don't leave out anything that you've said. Haman, of course, was absolutely mortified. It only got worse for Haman. He'd actually built a gallows on which he planned to hang Mordecai. Uh, And as it turned out, it wasn't Mordecai who wound up swinging from the gallows. You could guess who, and if not, you can read the book of Esther and find out. Overconfidence. Whom would the king want to honor more than me? Well, of course. Well, the passage we have before us today is not the book of Esther, but it's in Matthew, but it also involves a case of overconfidence that, as you may, turns out rather badly. Peter, here in this passage, shows a measure of overconfidence that will come back to haunt him soon. Now, Just before this, as we studied last week, was uh, the passage, uh, actually a couple passages we looked at, where Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, celebrating the Passover, and then he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then verse 30 says, when they had sung a hymn, uh, according to the Passover service, probably one of the Hallel Psalms or Praise Psalms. Hallel is Hebrew for praise. Like when you say Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, Psalms 113 through 118, they sang one of those and then they went out to the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem to the east, across the Kidron Valley. Now, there was a rule that when you were in the city to celebrate the Passover, you could not leave the city for the duration of the night. And actually, the Mount of Olives would have been within the outer boundaries that they could have traveled to That night, still considered within the city precincts, maybe think of it as uh, the suburbs. But uh, they traveled out to the Mount of Olives, and as we will see, traveled out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But as they arrived, or perhaps even as they were on their way, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And he said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, Jesus had already startled them. Back in that upper room, when he said, I tell you, one of you here in this room, here with me at this table, one of you will betray me. Well, then Jesus drops this bomb on them as well. So as we study these verses, I'd like to notice three things. Organize our thoughts around three three points as we study the passage. First of all, the occasion of Peter's overconfidence. Second, the expression of that overconfidence. And then third, some lessons we can learn from him and from his overconfidence there. Well, first of all, then, the occasion uh, in which Peter's overconfidence is found. Uh, We see Jesus' prediction or his prophecy about the future behavior of his disciples. You will all fall away because of me this night several things here that are important. First of all, you will fall away. The word to fall away is a word we've encountered before. The word uh, Greek word from which our word to be scandalized comes from, uh, to, to, to stumble over, to be offended. It's an odd use of the word uh, here, fall away, is uh, probably as good a rendering of it. Because it's not so much that the disciples turn against Jesus. Uh, As Judas did, it's not so much even that they lose their faith; it's more that they will be overcome with fear, as we shall see. But they they do flee Jesus—an implicit uh, denial, in a sense. The bulbs are going fast, but it wasn't so much that they consciously denied him as it was they simply fled from him in fear. You will all—and notice, you will all. Now, with Judas, he says, one of you will betray me. But here, he says, you will all fall away from me. When? This night. See, this wasn't something in the distant future. This was not some vague possibility that might occur at some time or another. But this would happen tonight, this night. And it was already night. Uh, It was a matter of mere hours. And notice he also says, you will fall away because of me, because of Jesus, because of this one whom they profess to love, because of this one they had just shared Passover with, because of Jesus himself, they would fall away. Now, it's not just Jesus who is prophesying this. He bases what he says on an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah. As it's written, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered passage we just read earlier, in Mike read our Old Testament reading, and Jesus says that uh, as having a relevance to his situation, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. Now, that's true literally. If You have a shepherd watching over his flock of sheep, and the shepherd is taken down. There's no one to guard or protect the sheep, no one to gather them, no one for them to rally around, and so they're scattered. Well, that's what Jesus says is going to happen. And he bases that on this Old Testament prophecy. But then he also has for them an assuring promise. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, Jesus always does this. If he has bad news, as he often did with the disciples, as he's told them on more than one occasion that when they got to Jerusalem that he would be arrested, he would be crucified, but... On the third day, he would be raised. He always gives that bad news, but follows it always with that good news. And they never seem to hear that part. In fact, they never really seem to hear or understand much of it at all. But Jesus does this again here. But after I am raised up, the resurrection is assumed. Then he says, I will go before you to Galilee. The picture is almost that, that the shepherd is back. The shepherd will lead the way. And in fact, what will happen when they're scattered? Well, the most natural thing is that they would flee to their homes in Galilee in the north. But Jesus says, even though you do that, I'll be there before you. I'll be there to meet you. You see, you'll flee. You'll be scattered. You'll flee. You'll flee to your homes But even there, you'll find that I am there before you. I am there in front of you. So even there, there's this assuring promise that the Lord is not going to abandon them. They may fall away from him. But notice the grace here. I, he says, will not abandon you. In fact, when you arrive in Galilee, I will be there to meet you. And in fact, when uh, Jesus was raised and when the women went to the tomb, Jesus is there and he instructs them, tell my brothers, I will meet them in Galilee. You see, Jesus was not going to fall away from them. And so that's the occasion for Peter's overconfidence, these words of Jesus, where he tells them exactly what's going to happen that night. And again, even though it doesn't seem to do them a whole lot of good at the time, later, looking back, this is yet another occasion where they can say, Jesus told us how it would be, and it was exactly the way he said Even when it was something, as we see, that they denied, that they didn't want to happen. And so that brings us then second to the expression of Peter's overconfidence, where he actually uh, speaks this, verbalizes this. Jesus has said this to them. And what does Peter do? Not only does Peter speak up, but Peter objects. Very characteristic. We've seen this before. Some of you teach. You may teach school. You may teach Sunday school. Have you ever noticed that sometimes every time you say something, or every, certainly every time you ask a question, there's one student who, who, who raises their hand, or worse, just blurts out what they want to say. One student. Well, Peter was that kid in Sabbath school. Because he's always the one who speaks up when Jesus says something. When Jesus asks a question, it's Peter to the front, Peter, who has the answer, and usually answering on behalf of the disciples, but it's Peter. And, and not only that, he has this habit of not just speaking up, but sometimes contradicting Jesus. We, we saw this particularly back in Matthew chapter 16. That Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, ready with the answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that answer. He points out it's by God's grace that he knows that and can confess that, that he perceives that, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Well, and then from that time on, in verse 21, Jesus uh, begins to teach them how he goes to Jerusalem, will suffer many things, be crucified and raised on the last day. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. Peter speaks up, but just as often Peter seems to contradict Jesus, to argue with him, to say, no, Jesus, you're wrong. And here he does it yet again. Jesus has just said this to them. He quotes Old Testament prophecy to support it. And, and Peter utters that great oxymoron, two words that clash with each other perhaps the greatest oxymoron ever no lord this this isn't what's going to happen peter answered in verse 33 though they all fall away because of you you know all these other guys i will never fall away you hear a little bit of the echo of the overconfidence the exalted self opinion of haman here the rest of these guys, they may fall away. You're probably right, Jesus. Some of them have seemed kind of sketchy lately. Yeah, I could imagine some of them. You may be right about some of them. But Peter says, as for me, I will never fall away from you. And so first of all, we get his objection here in verse 33. They, they may all fall away. I will never fall away. Now, Jesus counters Peter's objection. Now, remember, before when, Jesus, when, when Peter said, this will never happen to you, You know, no, you're not going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Jesus answers him rather harshly. He says, get behind me, Satan. He saw that as a temptation of Satan to avoid what was going to be a horrific experience for Jesus. Well, he doesn't say that here. What he does is repeat himself specifically for Peter's sake and in Peter's case. Because right here, he's not talking about all of them. He's talking about Peter. Truly, I tell you. Now, when Jesus says, truly, I say to you or truly, I tell you, he's saying this is very important. This is significant. This is deadly serious. And the the, the pronoun you here is singular. Truly, I tell you, Peter. I'm just talking to you, Peter, right now. I'll tell you this very night. Again, a little more intense, not just this night, but this very night. None other but tonight. Just hours. Before the rooster crows, the rooster had a habit of crowing at 12.30, 1.30, and 2.30. In fact, the Romans would refer to the watch from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock a.m. as the rooster, the, the cock crow watch, the rooster crow watch, because that's when the rooster tended to crow. Before the rooster crows... You will deny me three times. So Jesus goes from just talking about falling away to very specifically indicating, as we know how the story unfolds, not just Peter's fleeing from Jesus, but Peter's denying any knowledge of Jesus, certainly any friendship with Jesus, certainly any kind of close discipleship relationship with Jesus. And I'm sure that was not easy for Jesus to say. That must have pained him to say that, and it no doubt pained Peter, although I'm sure baffled him to, to hear that. You and I have never had someone tell us, very well, maybe you have, uh, but it's not a common occurrence, tell you something very specific that is going to happen in the future. Something that a human being could not know. And if you did, it was a guess. But in Jesus' case, it was no guess. Jesus was telling Peter something very specific that he was going to do, that was going to happen in the next few hours. I tell you, Peter, with the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Not just once, not twice, but three times. You, singular, you, Peter, will deny me. You who answer every question. You who speak up so boldly. Of your loyalty to me, you will deny me three times in the next few hours. But then Peter responds to that. Are you serious, Lord? I don't want that to happen. How can I keep that from happening? No, that's not what he said. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must Die with you. I will not deny you. The language here is extremely strong. It's also extremely hypothetical. Peter jumps to a worst case scenario, probably thinking more in terms of fighting for Jesus and dying at his side. But the language here is very hypothetical to the point where Peter is saying, if we wanted to expand it, even if, and this is most unlikely, Jesus, but even if I had to die with you. I will not deny you. I am that loyalty. I'm that committed to you. That even if it came down to laying down my life for you, I will. And that's doubtful, he thinks. I will not deny you. And what's more, all the other disciples said the same. Peter spoke up first, but the others chime in. Yes, you know what he said. that, That goes for me, too. We all stand with you, Jesus. Now, I'm confident they were absolutely sincere in that. They were also completely wrong. Because they hadn't yet faced the crucible. They haven't yet felt the temperature rising. And you and I know that when it starts to come to that, their courage, their boasting, their bravado crumbles, and they ran. Well, what can we learn from that? What lessons does this passage have for us? Well, generally, of course, it does warn us of the danger of overconfidence, especially here, overconfidence in the Christian life, overconfidence in who we are, and overconfidence in our love for and our relationship to Christ. But I want to go beyond just that general to consider a few specifics. First of all, um, if we want to look more directly at what was going on here, the tendency that we might have to overconfidence in the face of persecution or the face of opposition. We tend to think persecution in, in a violent sense and certainly it would include that, although persecution more generally considered could be any kind of opposition that, or, or, or rejection that you might encounter. Because of your faith in Christ. But I think we have a tendency, as we follow Jesus' disciples in the Gospels, to think, well, if I had been there, I would have known better. Or I I would have done better. Well, remember, you have many advantages those disciples didn't have. You have the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been poured out at this point, as he was in Acts chapter 2. You also have the New Testament, which they didn't have. You also have the story of how their stuff turned out, which... Uh, Of course, you don't have about yourself, but we do know that about them. But We also have 2,000 years of church history and reflection on the scriptures and teaching and preaching, study of God's word. We look at them and we think, well, I would have known better. I would have done better. But let's not look at them in their context. Let's look at ourselves in our context. Well, we don't know what tonight might bring. Well, we don't know what tomorrow might bring. And that's a little better analogy. Because we find ourselves, just as they did, facing each day, one day at a time. But we must not be overconfident about how we would handle rejection, how we would handle uh, opposition, legal opposition, even physical opposition, persecution. You know, uh, in, in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Satan's after you, Peter. And he wants to absolutely grind you through it. But, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail, and when you return, that you will strengthen your brothers. Couple things there. One, persecution arises ultimately not from man, but from Satan. From Satan and his demons raging against Christ and his kingdom. But the other side of that, I've prayed for you, reminds us that we are absolutely dependent on Christ to stand. We read Fox's Book of Martyrs and. How they stood boldly for Christ, even at the cost of their lives. Or read uh, Jacques Purvis's book, Fair Sunshine, where the Scottish covenanters persecuted to the death, even by professing Christians. And you think, could I have done that? Apart from the spirit and the grace of Christ? No, you couldn't do that. And that's how they did it. In their dependence on Christ. You see, our attitude... Must never be. Bring it on. But Lord, help me. Help me to glorify you. Even in the hour of death. Violent death, if need be. To us, that sounds extremely hypothetical. But then for Peter, it was too. But not just in persecution, but we must be careful not to be overconfident about, for example, even temptation. Temptation. You know, there was a verse I learned in college, one of the earliest verses I memorized, I suppose memorized it in, in grade school. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation will be, provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. Which is encouraging. Right? I mean, that's a good thing to know. It's a great verse to to remember that, one, when we're tempted, we're not tempted in some unique, different way from the way other people have been or are being tempted. Right? But that God also will help us and provide a way out so that it's not inevitable that we give in to sin. But remember what comes before that verse. The verse just before that one. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter thought he stood. He was wrong. We don't say to temptation, well, I'm strong. I can handle it. You know, there's a reason we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. You know, we flee temptation. We don't put ourselves in situations where we may be tempted Because we don't have too high an opinion of ourselves. We don't think, well, I'm strong. I don't need accountability. I don't need others to ask me questions about my heart and my life and my time and what I do. Because I'm strong. Be careful. if you think you stand. Take heed because you're setting yourself up for a fall. Third uh, lesson that we learn, we must not be overconfident about even our salvation. Now, the good news here is that those who are most concerned about the state of their soul are those probably most likely actually to be Christians, to be saved. It's those who think they're saved but are not. where you have really got the problem both in convincing them, but of course, they themselves have the problem. Yes, we should be confident of salvation, but not in ourselves only because we're confident in Christ and what he has done. Are you in Christ? Well, remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Examine yourselves. Peter said, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. How? By your faith in Christ, but also by the evidence of a changed life as Christ is at work. as That new life is in you, producing the fruits that it inevitably will produce. So whether it's facing persecution, whether it's facing temptation, whether it's a question of our salvation itself, we want to be careful not to fall into the trap, face the danger of overconfidence. The Scottish preacher, Alexander White, tells the story of a young man in his church who was given the opportunity to preach. And the man went bounding with enthusiasm and energy up the steps into the pulpit. But after he got up there, he began to falter, and and he began to become confused, and he forgot what he wanted to say. And after a few minutes of painful awkwardness, both for him and for the congregation, he came down out of the pulpit, shoulders slumped, head down, Dejection written on his face. And White knew he needed to encourage the the young man. Uh, But the main thing he said to them was this. If you'd gone up into the pulpit the way you came down, you might have come down the way you went up. If only he'd had that humility going into the pulpit, he might have come down with joy in his heart. But you see, he was overconfident. We don't proceed, we don't advance in the Christian life with bravado, with confidence or overconfidence in our own strength. Rather, recognizing how prone we are to fail, we lean on Christ, remembering that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would remove from us any hint of overconfidence, any hint of self-confidence. Lord, we recognize our frailty. We recognize how quick we are to fall. We recognize, Father, that we need you. We need you every hour. We need your grace to sustain us and hold us and keep us. We recognize, Father, that our success And following Jesus, comes not from our strength, but from His. Fill us, Father, with Your Spirit, that we might be faithful in the face of persecution, that we might be obedient in the face of temptation, and that we would indeed be saved in Christ, His death and His resurrection, to be with You, Lord, Your people, on that day. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.